0: Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and my co-host is a
1: white, cisgendered male. And I'm Michael Ralph, and my co-host is a white, cisgendered male. Professional growth requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer.
0: Today we are drinking Death Before Disco Porter from the Left Hand Brewing
1: Company out of Longmont, Colorado. I think I'm getting to the point where I can identify a porter by nose. We drank we've drank several porters on the show by this point, point. Like, and, and just in our lives in general. Also true, yeah. Uh, I think I I think I'm building a love of porters. Well, I like them in general, so I anticipate liking this one. This month, we'll be joined by Jen Bennis to discuss the mythical narrative of the factory model in education and why it matters for teachers today. And then later, we'll look at research that describes how teachers forge and forfeit uh, social capital and why that matters for the formation of teacher communities. So let's get started. Uh, So for our first segment, we are joined by Jen Bennis, who is a former special education teacher and host of the podcast Ed History 101. Uh, She now supports teachers and districts with authentic assessment design, and she is published in the fields of special, gifted, and middle-level education. And she has personal and professional opinions related to history, gender, and education. So thank you for joining us, Jen. My pleasure. I have no opinions on beer. I'm actually drinking a cider. So, <laughs> One of your podcast episodes from Ed History 101, I found particularly compelling. Uh, the one titled uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls because you were describing some of the history of Bells and how it was incompatible with some of the popular narratives for where Bells came from and their purpose in the educational space. Uh, So can you tell us a little bit about uh, that topic that I know uh, you discuss frequently with people in the education space?
2: Sure. And it's it's, it's the topic itself is the notion of origin story. And one of the things that we share as human beings is we appreciate origin stories. We like to hear, oh, this is where this was invented, or this is where this comes from. So it's a human desire to want to understand the beginning of something. And so uh, in the mid 80s or so, uh, there was a particular gentleman who wrote a book, which he called the Underground History of American Education. And it spoke to a lot of people because he pulled together tidbits from history and put it together in a narrative and said, here's your origin story. And he has gone on, he's been cited probably, you know, dozens of times for that origin story. But the origin story is one of his inventions. So the bell is one such example. It's very common for people to believe that schools, high schools work the way they do because they're training children to work in factories. Or they're based on factories. And one of the you know, data points they point to are the ringing of bells in schools. When in fact, bells predate the American education system. They're a form of communication over a distance with large groups. So it makes sense, it feels plausible that, oh, high schools are like factories, therefore they come from factories, when in fact it's much more complicated.
1: Yeah. let's do some of that. So uh, Lawrence and I, we are not historians uh, to the same degree of investment that you are and so we did a little bit of reading to try and prepare for this conversation. There's a recent article that was published on Edweek called The Side Effects of Education: A History Lesson. That author Beth Holland describes some of the recent events that have led us to where we are and sort of starts to call out some of that um, false history that gets discussed. But there's really an article that you shared, Jen, that goes into greater detail on some of this uh, this misconception. The Factory Model of Education, The Invented History by Audrey Waters. Your podcast does a beautiful job of laying out the actual history of Bells and some of this organizational structure. One of the things that you went into on your show that I particularly love the specific, um, the specific location escapes me now, but there was a school where they were saying, we need to make different spaces so that students can engage in different activities. We need a lab. We need a playground. We need these different places where they can do specialized stuff that you can't do in a general classroom, but we don't have enough space for everybody. So we'll have bells to let students move between these spaces so they can do the different things that they want to be doing, which sounds like a, a really – a reasonable thing to do so that students can self differentiate and so we can serve everybody with limited resources which is like directly in competition with the this prevailing narrative that you described
2: no, that's a, that's a fantastic summary of it. And I think one of the challenges is there's a lot of anecdotes in that history. So what you're describing is a particular plan uh, that came out of a school district in Michigan that was dealing with a massive influx of um, immigrants. And so they needed to figure out a way to move children. And at the same time, the it's called the Worth Plan, or you know, it has a few different names, but the uh, superintendent's name was Worth, who was a student of John Dewey so he was a progressive thinker and part of his plan as you described it was to give students the opportunity to move through their day and would use bells to indicate it was you know this period of the day had ended it was time to transition but at the same time bells were used in new york city schools you know in the early um, early 1900s as a way to let students know when it was time for lunch time to come back safety measures so there's always going to be multiple overlapping anecdotes that happen at different times in different places across the country. There are very few things in education that have just a, it started here first and only here. You know, there's only one or two exceptions that come to mind. Everything else, there's pretty much it was here, and then it was there, and then it was here, without those two places talking to each other.
0: Uh, yeah, about that narrative, one of the things that I was thinking about as I'm reading these, like, how does this factory, this factory origin story become so prevalent and one of the reasons that one metaphorically the comparisons you know there are comparisons that can be made and so when you see that metaphor play, played out your, your mind resonates like oh that's a connection i identify that's a connection i identify that's a connection i identify and so it feels like it fits
1: if we get the history wrong so that we can create this straw man that we can all rally against, then we overlook some of the mistakes that we've made in the past. You know, They referenced Dr. Zhao again, which was come up on, on our show uh, in the past, but they referenced some fairly recent policy decisions that have gotten made even as recently like the 60s and 70s. Uh, and so if we say this was wrong 100 years ago, then we don't have to address some of the more recent mistakes that have actually put us where we are now.
2: And that's a kind of the idea, of the uh, factory model, the idea, the factory myth kind of starts the narrative in the middle. If we truly wanted to go back to the origin story of history of education in America, the very first document that says this is what you should do to children on this soil was a letter from the governor of London, I believe, to the governor of one of the Virginia colonies that said, when you come across a, an indigenous child, kidnap them and raise them up to be Christian. So the very first document on American soil education was how to directions on how to destroy an indigenous child's spirit. The fact that we don't talk about that and we jump ahead 140 years to talk about the factory model. Oh, boy, there's a lot to unpack there.
1: It it seems to me sometimes a debunking is its own it's its own exciting notion like this popular popularly believed thing is wrong and i get to be in the outgroup where i know the right story is sometimes exciting why do people resist considering or discussing the actual narratives from our historical past like why do people not want to know the truth
2: yeah and, and I hear what you're saying about the excitement of demunking, and I completely appreciate and I feel that. At the same time, there's also some tensions around gender and race. I I'm white. My I, I write about being a white woman in education. I mean, Paul and I talk about it on our podcast. So I am the stereotypical American teacher. I'm a early 40s white woman. Went to college 50 miles from where I grew up. My first teaching job was you know within 80 miles of where I grew up. I'm her. <laughs> Many times, the people advocating the factory model, talking about the change, are men, mostly white, mostly for whom are no longer teaching. So, for yes, there's a part of this piece about wanting to debunk, but at the other time, it's my passionate commitment to recentering the women in education, uh, the factory model is a very masculine model. It's very much based on this masculine notion of what school was supposed to be and what it's about. And the people who talk about it are mostly men, like I said. So the idea, part of it is debunking. And the so part of the reason when people push back against me, and it's virtually always men, when they say, well, no, no, but really it's okay because there is a bit of a factory model to it. A part of it is them saying, you know, I, I, I'm extrapolating a bit, but a part of it is their frustration with me challenging their expertise. You know, they are this man who has published these books. I mean, and there's a few men I won't name jack who, who've blocked me on Twitter and I get it. I understand. I can be a little bit of a woodpecker when it comes to tapping on people's doors around that. But like when Ted Dintersmith tells me, Jennifer's schools are based on factories. Look at the, you know, study the history. That's, that's about gender. That's about power. That's about who's given authority in American education.
1: Well, especially that that comment of "look at the like, go look at the evidence, go look at the research, go look at the historical historical record." That kind of aggressive, confrontational use of the literature is really toxic. Is is a problem?
2: And it's not an easy conversation to have.
0: Um, One of the things that I found as I was reading this, or I felt as I was reading this, is that in addition to all of these issues, if we look at the burgeoning school organizations and we say they were factory model, they are bad, what we miss out are things that were done well that we are now dismissing because they were part of this monolithic bad factory history.
2: The idea of the moderate system or the Lancasterian system is the idea of older children teaching younger children, which is a common thing that happens in, um, you know, the one-room schoolhouse model. Now, I, as a New Yorker, um, there are still seven one-room schoolhouses in my state. So we have about 730 school districts. Of those 730 school districts, seven are technically one-room schoolhouses where there are seniors in the same learning space as kindergartners. Or I think um, most of them are actually go K-8 and the students go out to different high schools. But the idea is there have been moments throughout history where that model of older children helping younger children and children moving forward, not based on their age, but based on their understanding of the knowledge is what we see today is referred to as competency-based education which is now having a huge absurgence in New England and and various places across the country. And so what Audrey's talking about in those particular examples is the philosophical idea that instead of moving children through the system based on time spent, it's based on skills mastered. And so that's part of what, that's the examples that she described are part of that competency-based model, which we pushed away from in a while, went back to, and now we're reconsidering.
1: And uh, tell me how I'm doing in contextualizing this. Uh, you recognized uh, who you were in a few of your identities. I, I am a white male, and I'm even going to school to be trained as an educational statistician. Uh, but the the focus on competency and mastery as your mechanism for advancement in school uh, seems to me to be directly opposed to some of the uh, heavily quantitative focused, standardized assessment efforts that were sort of pushed with the no child left behind era kind of changes, which uh, seems to be back to reinforcing some of that, the the schoolman notion of I come in, I know how to use this data, which is inherently got this masculine focus to it. And so to reject these fo- these discussions of competency and mastery, which are a little harder to evaluate, I'm going to be focused on data as the determinant factor which is then protecting some of my male privilege is that is that a reasonable synthesis of some of this
2: oh Absolutely. And it's what you've kind of articulated is one of the kind of fascinating catch-22s. So um, I will always make book recommendations. Uh, We tend to think of the standardized test as a recent phenomenon of No Child Left Behind. Uh, So that particular article in Ed Week does start the standardized testing push at No Child Left Behind. However, there's a great book called The Testing Wars in the Public Schools by William Reese where there were practically teacher riots in Boston in the 1840s because the schoolmen came in and said, we need a standardized measure. And so they created standardized tests in Boston in the 1840s. New New York State has had a standardized test since 1853. So this notion of you know, this is something new. But what you, what you spoke about, about the kind of the interplay of gender is absolutely at play in a lot of what we see in schools. Teaching is a deeply female profession. It is very much pink collar. Seven out of 10 teachers are women, mostly white. Seven out of 10 school administrators are men, mostly white. So there's a phenomenon called the glass escalator And it's the idea that men in education are more likely to move up into positions of leadership because if you are the only elementary teacher, you know, male elementary teacher in a school building and your principal is also a man, the two of you are going to find each other and, you know, you're going to hang out. And if you're the only two men in the school, you kind of make that connection. So... There's that tension of, we oftentimes start the timer on history in recent events when it's actually much longer. And then we oftentimes dance around the gender conversation when I think there's a lot to be gained by talking about it directly.
1: Where should we be pushing to address this kind of problem? Because it feels like there's sort of several major threads all bound up in it.
2: I think part of it has to be um, negotiating that tension between the science and the art of teaching. Uh, One of my favorite... um, anecdotes, I think I learned it from Audrey Waters, is that the multiple choice item, um, the actual creation of the multiple choice item, which came out of, I believe, the University of Iowa, was based on the supposition that female teachers were too emotional when scoring. So we needed an objective measure. So when we talk about kind of where to go from here in terms of in terms of the gender challenges, it's acknowledging that teaching is both a science and an art. So it's teaching teachers about things like inter reliability, which serves a similar function to a standardized, you know, like Cronbach's Alpha and all that stuff, but it taps into more teachers' professional expertise. And less about, te- it's, so it's more about teachers' judgment and less about the judgment of a statistical formula.
0: Well, one of the things we discuss about this at my school is the illusion of objectivity is that you don't actually achieve objectivity through those, uh, through those practices, but it allows you to feel like you are objective and so then you can move on as then okay I'm no longer on the hook. For any of this, because these numbers are depersonalized and external to me, and this is what happened. And, you know, now, now we go on to the next thing, as opposed to when you're looking at the work, and you have to make the call, and you have to acknowledge, this student doesn't have it, or this student does have it or, or, and and you have to personalize what they are communicating what the kids are communicating.
2: And there's. There's a second part of that sentence. It's this student isn't making it and here's how I know, or here's the evidence I see in their work. So it's me articulating, you know, I believe this student needs more support and here's why, and here's what I'm going to do, as opposed to, well, the data say this and so therefore, which, yeah, depersonalizes it
1: and those those the the biases and the mistakes that we make in the item creation and some of the uh, violated assumptions that are along the way as we create some of those statistical descriptors are sufficiently opaque that even if at some level i'm aware that this is not this is not an appropriate description of the student's progress it's it's obscured enough from the view of others that it just isn't like, oh, look, the, the students from historically disadvantaged subgroups are, con- again, disadvantaged in my classroom, but I don't really know how that happens, and so it's probably not my fault, which is lets you off the hook versus, as you, just, as you say, here's how I know why this is wrong, where I'm going to make mistakes. I'm, I'm going to get it wrong sometimes, and then I have to be accountable for that, versus when the mistake is sort of hidden in amongst that pile of algorithms, it's much harder to point a finger at any individual place.
2: And to complicate it even further, because the average American teacher is a 40-something white woman, and we were a generation of women raised not to see race, which means in uh, the majority of cases, our perceptions of students are influenced by, you know, a childhood being taught, it's not polite to talk about race, it's not polite to talk about these sort of things. So it's never, you know, it's not the idea that this Uh, you know, objectivity is, or working towards objectivity is bad, but at the same time we have to acknowledge that the subjectivity of an individual teacher is going to be dramatically skewed by her or his or their background experiences related to race, related to gender, related to class. And so it's a constant battle between a quest for a deeper understanding of subjectivity while challenging the things that make everything so subjective.
1: That brings us back to the differences in the composition of the various levels of education where our student body has one particular composition of racial and gender identities versus the teachers don't often, at least in my experience and in our regions, don't often match that same composition. And then the administration has a different look entirely as well. And so when you have different biases associated with those different identities and some biases have the power to insist that their perspective is the right one or is the more important one, then you disadvantage any movement between those different levels, which then just perpetuates more of the status quo. Well, uh, to
0: go back to, uh, to some of the things that we were referring to here, one of the things that really stood out as I was preparing for this today was from the, the, uh, the Ed Week paper or Ed Week article. The Coleman Report, which I don't know anything about until I read this, uh, in 1966, uh, asserted that, yes, there is a performance, ba- There's there are performance, there is an achievement gap. That is real. So we knew that in 1966. Er, six. And then uh, only uh, 10% of the achievement gap is associated with the demographic factors, and the rest of it is associated with environmental and societal circumstances outside of the school.
2: Well, one thing to keep in mind is that in 1966, it was still utterly legal for any school district in in, in America to turn away a child with a disability. So in 1966, if a parent attempted to enroll a child who presented as having disability, be it a physical disability, uh, Down syndrome, some sort of cognitive delay, a school district could legally say, I'm sorry, we can't serve you. So in 1966, our understanding of who is allowed to be in American schools wasn't yet where it was going to be after 1975 with the passage of what is now IDEA, the Education um, uh, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So the Coleman Report is kind of mirrored or kind of mired within a particular framework of this idea of a gap. And so people will sometimes ask me if it's not the factory model, what is it? And I will offer, it's a model of white supremacy and institutional sexism. So when we talk about this achievement gap, part of the notion of the achievement gap is based on this idea, the goal is to get children of color to the place where white children are. A gap, you know, it's a space between where you are and where you want people to be. Whereas in part of that I would offer is linked to this notion of white supremacy, that the goal is white kids are good, let's bring kids of color up to where white kids are. Whereas if we flip it on its head and say, if you look at schools, uh, my classic example is outside of Detroit. There is a school that has a rock climbing wall, an indoor Olympic sized swimming pool. Kids take AP, IB. There are more than enough guidance counselors. There are uh, kids get access to hot lunch and cold lunch. Sometimes they've open campus. Uh, They can leave and they can go. There are no metal detectors. There are no security guards. Six miles away. There is a school where garbage cans are regularly put in the hallway because the ceiling leaks. Children have to bring in toilet paper from home. Bathroom stalls don't always have doors because the school made the decision it was unsafe for it to have stalls, you know, stall doors and bathrooms. Children rarely get AP. They get no IB. Uh, there is no swimming pool. There is no rock climbing wall. And so part of the challenge is we will talk about these this gap without kind of negotiating that tension, that what we're trying to do is while we're trying to close that gap, we are giving white children in suburban districts every benefit after every benefit and taking benefits away from kids of color, especially kids who live in high poverty areas. So it's this constant battle. And so part of what I hope we do when we talk about history is we start to say, let's bring an end to this constant evolution of white parents hoarding privilege for their children you know moving to the suburbs and you know setting up school district boundaries that deliberately avoid housing projects so part of the coleman report is authored by people who saw the goal as being let's bring black kids up to where white kids are and what i'd offer is we want to kind of set aside that model and say it's not about bringing them up it's about equity of opportunity. It's about making sure every child has every single possible advantage while they're in school as opposed to disadvantage.
1: Jen, really appreciate you taking the time to join us. If somebody wants to read more of what you've written or consume more of the information that you provide out there, where can they follow you or where can they find the things that you do?
2: Well, probably the best place is on Twitter. Uh, my personal handle is at Jen, two N's, B-I-N-I-S. B-I-N-I-S. And I also have uh, a website just with where I have my blog and links to different things, which is just JenBBinnis.com. Uh, and then you can read all the stuff I've done to Ask Historians. You can read my book recommendations. there's different posts and uh, various writings related to gender history and education.
0: Empower each other.
1: Our second segment, we are looking at a publication in The Educational Researcher called The Ties That Bind How Social Capital is Forged and Forefooted in Teacher Communities. This is by Bridwell Mitchell and Cook. I got to tell you, I'm excited to discuss this topic. I know it's something that's come up on the show a couple of times before, uh, but this was published in 2016, which is not as recent as what we usually discuss, and so we got to make it especially useful and relevant, apparently. To summarize
0: the uh, sort of approach that this paper was coming from, what social capital is sort of a currency that promotes the exchange of techniques and esteem and resources between individuals in a building which can contribute to improved practice and social capital can be generated with relationships both within and outside of the school and social capital is not evenly distributed within schools. That's sort of where they start. Since social capital is developed through relationships they wanted to look at all of these different factors that are contributing to the relationships that are developing and being maintained inside a school building. They surveyed a bunch of teachers over the course of three or four years in four different elementary schools asking them who they talked to and
1: how often they had discussions in that building. I'm just sitting here and staring at you because our conversation with Jen has kind of changed how I look at this paper a little bit because I I saw that they they identify from the background literature and then acknowledge that it is present in their data also that identities are a major determining factor of which communities we associate with. They look at age, they look at gender, they look at racial identities, they look at subjects taught, and generally speaking, we are more likely to associate with communities that are comprised of people who share characteristics with us. That's just a general phenomenon about which we already know. My perception of that phenomenon has changed since our discussion with Jim, And so I don't have ready-made questions or, or discussion to access because I'm just processing. There was one group, so they have a figure where they illustrate all of the relationships between all of the teachers that they looked at. And so it really is just this rat's nest of points and connection lines uh, to describe all the different relationships and their relative strengths and the communities that emerge in that picture. And there's one group in there that is salient to me right now, and it's group G in their figure. And it is the only group that includes males. It is the only group that includes teachers who are white. And their positioning relative to each other, in my qualitative analysis just looking at this image, is the closest of any community in the diagram.
0: Uh, And that matters because one of the major findings is, is that they said, yes, demographics of the individuals matter in terms of sustaining... A, a, a community, and, and for this paper they defined community uh, as groups of people that regularly talk to each other, that's loosely they they did a better job of defining that, but from our purposes just cliques, cl- clusters of people that work or talk to each other regularly and uh, they, when we jumped to the end they found that yes, there's an influence of uh, individual demographics it that will inf- that will help determine who they're going to talk to in the future. And yes, there is a, um, influence of building directed contact that will help influence them in the future. But the strongest indicator of who they will talk to in the future, the strongest persistent groups are based by how frequently they talk to each other now. So the closer you are with the people in your group, your clique, your community, the more frequently you engage with the people, with those people in that group, the more likely you will persist in engaging with them in the future. And they call that cohesion. And cohesion was important for two reasons. One, it increases the exchange of technique and resources and support within the group
1: which i think aligns really well with the commons idea that we discussed last month so we're freely discussing ideas we're analyzing problems we're engaging in all the behaviors that we described for some sort of innovation commons we're doing that if i'm in a cohesive group
0: but it makes it more difficult for external forces to change that group
1: And not only that, but if I'm in a highly cohesive group, that's because we're having frequent interactions that leaves me fewer uh, resources, time and energy to engage in discussion and participation outside of the group. And so you have um, participation in this highly cohesive group to the exclusion of participation in other groups. And that was something they found in this paper also was connections between and across communities are less stable over time. I think all of this paints a picture of this. I don't think any teacher in that particular group is intentionally excluding teachers outside of the group or ignoring connections outside of the group. But I think that is a result of the groupings that we see. Yeah, at
0: this school, there is one group that has males and one group that has white teachers in it. They're the, That's the same group. That means that for those white male teachers, they are more intensely sharing ideas with each other and less likely to be influenced by other groups.
1: And if we combine that with other ideas that we know about patterns in education, things like the glass escalator... Then the males who are more likely to be promoted by the males in administration, then the other members of that group are going to have an existing connection with administration, and thus confer greater social capital when they are promoted, and those people are likely to be other white males, or more likely than the people in, who are participants in the other groups. And my intention in looking at all of this is not to fault anyone for being friends with someone. That's not That's not what I think this is worth talking about. But I think that if we allow these natural processes to go unchecked and unconsidered, then we are going to be excluding other people. And so ultimately, the, the should that I want to talk about is what does it take to intentionally build connections beyond what our... Self-selected groups. Groupings might be, what does it take for me to intentionally cross those community boundaries and build connections, uh, or how do I promote some disruption of those naturally forming communities in a healthy way? Because we want connections, we want communities. So first let's um, establish a reason why an
0: administration would want to promote cohesion and uh, cross-community contact in their school. One trend that was asserted in the paper, and this is something that I definitely am observing in my school now, is that schools are relying more and more on their own teachers for improved professional development experiences. They are asking for s- teachers that are finding something that they are excelling at or developing or proud of in their own school and saying, will you share and help other teachers uh, develop this? And that's that is that's great. That's a, that's a fine movement. But the second half of that is the teachers that are involved in that are going to have to wield social capital if their experiences are going to have any value of change in the school. As an administrator, you've got to develop that. So what are we going to do as an administration, as a culture, as a school to help develop the exchange and closeness of my teachers?
1: I think the should is not to attempt to undermine or prevent the formation of communities, but is highlighting something that came up last month about the importance of these common spaces representing loose connections or informal connections. And so those cross community relationships help infuse new ideas into the communities that do exist and promote communication and more broad connections, those weaker social ties through which we identify opportunities and new information. And they can only happen if there are enough external community connections to have that influx of new information and innovation, those connections. And so it's actually a a suggestion that's in the paper is to mix it up to promote some instances where we have interactions and connections outside of our normal communities. And so I'm imagining if we have this PLC structure where I'm interacting with the same people, even if they're the people I choose, even if they're the innovative teachers who are focused on growth and improvement, I still have to be intentional and I have to be supported in having connections and relationships with other teachers beyond those typical boundaries so I can continue to innovate and have the influx of new ideas. There's an example of this uh, from uh, our building, the building we used to share, uh, where there are a teacher from another department teaching a different subject who was interested in some of the same philosophical principles, some of the autonomy, the mastery focus. And so she joined us for a few of our PLCs and for a few of the conversations so she could explore some of those ideas which were not being discussed in the same way in her usual community and then she could bring those back to her community and that was something that she's still struggling with to this day and so that can only happen if she's being supported in mixing up her usual community interactions because that's something that that was stated point blank in the paper was cohesion undermines innovation yeah it does. It's good for lots of reasons, but it undermines innovation. So you have to all cohesion or non cohesion are both wrong. Right. So how do we manage cohesion so we get the benefits while minimizing the costs? You and I discuss because you are intentionally cognizant of your social capital. I am like
0: this was uh, coming home to me like uh, as last week we said I like really like having uh, innovative discussions with teachers in my buildings and I go it's part of my work day to go visit other teachers it's not scheduled it's just I make sure it happens every day and sometimes we're just maintaining a relationship and we're not doing any cognitive work but sometimes and often actually often we are We are talking about what's going on in our classrooms and what we can do to make it better. When we talked about the cliques, I'm like, okay, yeah, there are people outside of my regular department that I do go talk to. I have a pretty productive working relationship with our librarian, and and I have a couple people in the English department that I stop by and swing by to from time to time. But I don't really mix with most of the school. So it's more for me to think about about
1: my position. Well, and I think even from that position, there's something else to consider as we both identified in the open, we we have several dominant identities Mm -hmm. associated with who we are. And so even if I'm a member of that tight, highly cohesive G group in their diagram, I also have some responsibility for allowing others access to the benefits of my common space. So going out and and interacting with other communities is one, but allowing others to interact with my community is another. So being cognizant of if somebody reaches out and wants to participate, I need to know that's a fragile connection. Yeah. especially if they're not intentionally targeting that practice they haven't read this paper they haven't had this consideration they just they intuitively know i need to interact with the people if they reach out i need to be aware that is a really great decision for them and i need to do what i can to be accessible i need to do what i can to support them so that they can have some of the benefits of that weak interaction that they have that they have decided to reach out and attempt to make i need to be responsible for not excluding for not boxing out people from my communities especially if i think that i have a great community i think that i do and i think that you do too
2: we're in this together
0: okay i have a note for episode 026 okay let Ralph do the overview summary without interrupting him. I'm just going to put it in right now. Oh, I did... did
1: I? I don't know that I've shared with you. Uh, there's a piece of professional literature, I think it was research and commentary, on um, the use of last names as mononyms Oh no! being a mechanism for gender-based disparity in the world oh man I have to stop right? now it sucks <laughs> it sucks it sucks because because it's the thing I, I like and it's the thing that I've done yeah but uh, it's something in my in my life there are places where I refer to people by their last names only and some people I don't and I've noticed that it's mostly men to whom I refer on a last name basis oh and this piece of literature, well, now I got to heck and find it because... I'm yeah, uh, well, I need to read it
0: because, I mean, I I believe about myself, but I call all of my students by their last name regardless. Uh, you sure do. Um, but that so, doesn't mean, even though I... But you're doing like a
1: Mr. or Mrs., which is different right. from being a Mr. or Ms. versus right. just the last name, which is specifically what this is about.
0: Well, see, but see, Mr. and Ms. also has its own... Well, it doesn't, actually, because I had a student who requested that I use the mixed pronoun of, of the zh sound, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, okay, I did that then. So um, I guess as long as I'm consistent with their self-identified pronouns and their preferences of pronunciation... For prefixing, yeah.
1: yeah. That's not, I that's still, not I the still need to read it.
0: It's not the thing. But it's not um, the same thing.
1: Uh, so, uh, this is especially for like historical work, like Darwin, Einstein. Those are ways that we refer to people. Franklin, but Franklin hits the ear weird. It's Rosalind Franklin, right? It hits the ear weird, um, and so it's it's a mechanism for um, it's a shorthand for identifying uh, within or without the uh, the Good Boys Club. Yeah, is sort of how I synthesize this piece, and. I do that or did that. It's like, oh my gosh, I gotta stop doing that. I guess I'm just gotta stop doing that. And it came up I saw that come through. And I was like, fine, I'll stop requesting that people call me Ralph, I'll stop doing that. Uh, but then I had some students uh, who met me when I first came to KU and I was doing that. and so they were referring to me as Ralph. I was like, well, I gotta address this. And so I so I showed the literature, the first day of research methods. I showed that paper and was like, Some of you, I introduced myself as a couple of you as Ralph. I introduced myself just now as Michael. And here's why. Because this paper, How Gender Determines the Way We Speak About Professionals, by Stav, Atir, and Melissa Ferguson, uh, describe how that mechanism of last name as a shorthand is gender disparate. And so we need to stop doing that. So so, don't call me Ralph. Call me Michael. And they're like, okay. So we moved on.
2: Yeah, we
1: uh, but yeah, but like i that's been my experience for decades. And so like that is directly in conflict with what feels good to me. And so I got to get over that. Um, I got to get over that. That's just that's the end of that story. I have to get over that. Yeah. But it made me think of it. So like because you and I yeah use last name shorthand for each other. And I'm not. I don't know that that means that I need to call you Lawrence always. No. But I need to be aware. What I'm definitely gonna do is any.
0: Professional reference to you will be Mr. Ralph or Michael. Yeah, that's probably appropriate. Yeah, and then I'm probably going to keep calling you nickname Ralph when, when in personal playing. settings. Yeah, yeah, we'll play whatever. But I'm going to have to, in my part of my professional hat, yeah, in my professional writing, professional dialogue, at at work when I'm talking about you, I'm going to have to say
1: Michael Ralph or Mr. Ralph. Yeah. Yeah, which is good for me. Yeah, we get better. Yeah, we get better. But uh, but it's a source of discomfort because we have to change. Yeah, I was I only had that discomfort because I had the privilege to experience what was normal in the first place. So we'll we'll live. We get better. We get better.
2: Make better mistakes.
0: Uh, so, uh, are we ready to ask, how was the beer?
1: Yeah, how was the beer? What'd you think of this porter?
0: Uh, I felt that it was mild compared to other porters that I've had before. Um, the, the front flavor was very muted. Uh, but then in, uh, what I find to be typical, um, porter fashion, there's kind of a biteier end to the flavor. Uh, Afterwards, so it's
1: mild at the beginning, a slight hint of bite at the end, uh, but overall uh, pleasant. Yeah, that smoky is not quite the right word, but the second half of that palate as it comes in and as you say it bites and it's got some Christmas to it is, is really what I love about drinking dark beers it's, it's similar to what you get from a stout I think that this one does it really well because it really focuses on that back half because of the permuted introductions which is my favorite part of the beer and so I actually, I'm quite fond of this one I like this one a lot we appreciate you tuning in for yet another month. Remember that all of our references, all of the other reading material is available on two com. We can't wait to hear comments from you and suggestions for what we do next month. As you pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.